is Jacob. I'm going to be reading the scripture tonight. Uh, we're going to be reading out of Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 26. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Two things we'll talk about in this passage on your paper. Why work won't work and how work can work again. Let me pray before we look into this. Lord Jesus, we pray for your presence. Uh, we unavoidably look everywhere else to try to justify ourselves, try to prove that we're enough, that we matter, that we should be paid attention to, that we're important. Um, and we're tired. And some of us already know these are fools, errands, and hollow places we're looking, but some of us, it's like we're not in on the joke yet. And I feel that, and my friends feel that. And would you please come as Redeemer and Savior and friend of sinners and good shepherd to wayward sheep? Your sheep are precious to you. You love us. So I pray that even these next 30 minutes together would, would, would warm every heart here to know that you really are a kind God who loves people like us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you've been around a while, um, you've heard some of my stories from different seasons of my life. Uh, one season of my life was uh, after I left Athens, moved up to Philadelphia uh, for seminary. That's where I went to seminary. And during my three of my four seminary years up there, I helped out with a campus ministry at UPenn, University of Pennsylvania. It's a uh, school in downtown Philadelphia. Um, I'm not an Ivy League guy. You know that by now. I don't have the brain for an Ivy League school, but Penn is known as the social Ivy, kind of the work hard, play hard of the Ivy League schools. And so I was like, well, a kid from UGA could probably at least pretend his way um, to swim in these waters a little bit. So as I got to know um, more and more of these students over those years, um, they were, they were probably still to this day the most accomplished people I've ever been around. Every single one of them was the valedictorian of their high school. Uh, and you find out they're like the state champion tennis star. And they're being recruited by Google for a summer internship that would hopefully lead in Google's estimation that they would take a job with them. They spoke a few languages and they were cool and they were fun to be around. And they looked just physically immaculate just like the most put together people you could ever imagine. And these are, it's the cream of the crop from not just in America, but around the world. 
who end up getting into these schools. To the naked eye and to my eye, they looked perfect. So I left Philadelphia in 2013. In, in August of 2013, um, we drove out to New Mexico to start working for RUF. So I was not aware of what was about to be the dark, one of the darkest years in Penn's history, which began the month after I left and went on for the next year. Between August of 2013 and September of 2014, six Penn students committed suicide. Let this sink in. That's one every other month for more than a year. Imagine the red and black every other month. Another one of those students that I just described took their life. So the administration obviously recognizes this is a crisis. This isn't, these aren't just one-off events. And so they form a task force to kind of investigate what are the causes beneath this epidemic of suicides. And one of the things that appeared in the report that they wrote uh, was something that Penn students had long kind of passed around each other as lingo. It was lingo that all the students knew, and it was called Penn Face, P-E-N-N Face. And the report defined what students said Penn Face meant. Penn Face, they said, is the practice of acting happy and self-assured, even when sad or stressed. And they said, the report went on, it said it stemmed from the perception that you have to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor. And uh, the, the, where I saw this report in this book, Seculosity, I've told you about, and I'll quote him again tonight, David Zoll, he added to this, it's not just that you had to, to be perfect in every sphere of your life, but you had to appear effortlessly, casually perfect. Like, I'm not even breaking a sweat, crushing it in life. It's just natural. Like, I wake up and I win all day long, and I'm not even having to work at it. That's pen face. Now, obviously, uh, much more was going on beneath the surface of what I saw when I was there and what a lot of other people saw, this casual perfection, this effortless um, just, you know, crushing it. What you would see in people is above the water. If you saw their heads, what was above water is a smile on the face, and everybody looks like they're having a great time. And right beneath the water, if you had gone under to look, people are frantically treading for their lives. And they're getting very exhausted, and they're running out of steam doing it. So that a lot of students in situations like this have the experience of feeling like they're drowning, but they have to wear a smile on their face and they can't yell help. It's not just Penn, it happened at UNC last fall. They had a student break. They sent everybody home for mental health days because this was happening there. It's happening in a lot of different university contexts. And it's a heartbreaking place to be. You don't have to be at Penn or UNC to feel it. A lot of us resonate with this kind of perfectionistic and performance-based pressure. It I'm not just talking to like, you know, the Honors College people at UGA. If you're at UNG, you've gotta be really smart to get in there, and you're probably trying to get into UGA, which means you gotta be really smart to do that. It's something all of us really feel, and it's death. This is very clearly something more than a few tenths or hundredths of a decimal point on a GPA. 
when an 18 or 19 or 22 year old is willing to end their life because they failed a test or they didn't get into a particular degree track. Clearly something is more on the line and that is affecting them at a deeper level than just decimals. Those numbers signify something to them and it touches at a very deep place of their being. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes, and we'll slowly get ourselves here to how he's making this argument, but, but his, his indictment against what we ask work to be for us and performance to be for us is that we ask it to get us gain. That's a word you're going to hear a lot in the next few minutes, gain. We look to it to advance us, to help us gain more security, more money, and whatever money would do for you, more happiness, more respect. You know the thrill, right? When you, when you, you don't even humble brag. A roommate asks you, hey, where were you? Oh, I was, I was in Atlanta interviewing. And they ask, with who? You know the thrill of telling them who you were interviewing with. That firm everybody knows about. Or more influence, more friends, more upward mobility. And we feel shame uh, when, when we're, you know, giving ourselves to something or doing an internship or interviewing with somebody that nobody knows about that's not going to give us gain or that other people would perceive as not really advancing us that much. We tend to ask work to bring us existential advancement, advancing our soul to bring gain to our insides, not just on our resumes. And we have the sense in our minds that it should be effortless too. I shouldn't even have to work at it. Success should just come with a few tweaks, with a few inputs. Fruitfulness should come, but it's an impossible pursuit. And the teacher that we've been listening to in this letter says it's chasing the wind. It's another rainbow with no pot of gold at the end of it. It's chasing the wind. He asks us, and this is what I love about the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he's not just a lecturer, He's kind of Socratic method, which is what the best professors are. They patiently pace the room and they keep throwing questions back at the class and they let you come up with the answers. And they let the dots connect in your mind and the light bulbs come on in your brain. They don't just tell you the way it is, they ask you, isn't this perhaps the way it is? And in verse 22, he asks us, what do people get or gain for all the toil and anxious, restless striving with which we labor in heaven, in this frustrated and frustrating life, what exactly is it that we gain? And you might say money, status, the VP position, um, more vacation time, and he will put us in a time capsule and take us a few decades ahead uh, maybe as a retiree or maybe as someone at the, towards the end of his career, and he will say what people who are having a midlife crisis will say. And he'll say, um, just like what all the celebrities said last week that I threw at you, just a barrage of celebrity quotes of people who had climbed the mountaintop and said, it ain't what it's cracked up to be. I can save you a really strenuous climb up the mountain. What you thought was up here isn't here. He says, all our days, our work is grief and pain. Even in night, our minds can't stop. He's saying that's what this pursuit is like. 
when we ask work to give us kind of spiritual, existential gain to advance you in some kind of deep way, you and I will always be behind, always be trying to catch up, always trying to keep our head above water, always treading frantically underwater, and therefore always feeling like we're going to drown. Real quick, he didn't say his problem was with work. And, you know, I would imagine we're coming culturally back around to a place where we see work as a good thing, and I think that's a good thing. Like, work is a good thing. You know, you, you get to really kind of find your niche right now with your really specific degree program and a really specific internship and a job. So we have like a better ability to do work that we love and are passionate about. Thumbs up for that. He's not saying that work is a curse or work is bad, the way that maybe our grandparents might have thought going to the factory every day is a drag. But work is cursed right? We talked about this two weeks ago. Work happens under the sun. Work is outside of Eden, or at least the work we experience now. It's frustrating. Thorns and thistles grow out of the ground, not just beautiful little tomato plants. We bear fruit by the sweat of our brow. Every little thing takes a ton of work to get. And chaos has been unleashed in the realm of work as well. So, I mean, just a few examples to kind of bring this down to earth in my little world. I love my job, and I often think I've got the best job in the world, and I know that's a blessing, and I know a lot of people can't say that, but I love it. Um, but the futility that we feel oftentimes, um, I mean, we will spend months and months and months and spend tons of money preparing for welcome weeks that this past year got completely rained out. And you're like, well, it's just a rainy week. No, it has big impacts. How are you supposed to meet new people when you can't meet new people? Or how COVID just undid tons of uh, companies or industries or ministries, plans. All these initiatives that they had just rolled out. Restaurants that had just opened their doors downtown and they never had a customer in them before they closed their doors in bankruptcy. This is where work happens. This is where work happens. So careerism is just another shiny rainbow with no pot of gold at the end of it. Now look, let's do a little bit of cultural work. This is a particularly hard thing for us to hear, I think. And the reason is that we've been, like I mentioned a second ago, subtly discipled in our childhood and till now to believe that work can like be your soulmate. We are beginning to do with jobs what our parents' generation did with marriage or romance. That was a new thing for their generation, this idea that there is a one out there for you. If I find the one, then I'll be happy forever. Apocalyptic romance is what it's called. This kind of elevates you into the stratosphere. If I find the perfect one. And now we feel that about jobs too, don't we? So we don't just feel like the impossibility and the pressure of finding the perfect mate, we also feel that about the perfect job, which immediately makes us scared and anxious and death by options and not really know what we want to do or I, man I really don't want to mess up this decision right you feel that I felt it even 20 years ago when I was in your seat we've done the same thing with work that we did with romance look at how it happens in culture and again this is an insight from David Zoll that drew my attention to it he said when when even when um you know the Parkers and the Coppages and even your parents were kids. Here's what some of the most well-known TV shows were back in the day. 
when home and family and free time were the center of life. Full House, That 70s Show, Home Improvement, All in the Family, Little House on the Prairie, Leave it to Beaver. That's the previous generations up to you. And listen to what the main shows were in your childhood or up in through your adolescence. The Office, 30 Rock, Mad Men, Parks and Rec, even Ted Lasso. Cheers for all of that. Where do all of those shows happen? All in the workplace. Whether it's a field or an office or an ad firm, they all, the center of life, the center of meaning has shifted in our culture from home and family and community to office and work. Coworkers are the new family. The office is the new house. We don't, li we don't work to live anymore. We live to work. It's not insignificant to me that Kirby Smart in a six-minute speech in the stadium thanked the wives and children of coaches who slept on cots in their office multiple nights every week last fall and didn't see their families so that we could win a championship. That's the new norm in NCAA football coaching culture. Sleep on the floor of your office. It did not used to be that way. And it's celebrated now. It's the price you have to pay if success and work is what justifies you, not just at a resume level, but at a spiritual, soul, existential level, you have to pay that price to get to where you want to be. So again, what causes a shift this big in a couple of decades? It's what we've said, but just to reinforce it, we are asking work to do much more for us than just get us through the next month of rent. We are asking the research job you want, the med job, the, the doctor job you want, the classroom job you want to do a lot more for us, to bring us gain and significance and control over the chaos of life and enoughness. Again, David Zoll, my last time <laughs> quoting him, he says, when work becomes the primary arbiter of identity, purpose, worth, and community in our lives, when it becomes where we locate our enoughness, it has ceased to function as employment and has begun to function as religion, or at least we have made it responsible for giving to us the very things which we used to look to God. When we put the blinker on in our lives and turn down the path of, if I get this job or get into this particular med school or get these particular credentials, the doors of life are going to open up and the red carpet's going to unfurl. We are consciously choosing to turn down a calamitous path that all of our celebrity friends and our teacher in Ecclesiastes has said, turn around, turn around. It is not what you think it is. Life down that path, he says in verse 22 and 23, is filled with toil, it's an anxious striving. It's filled with grief and pain. It's filled with sleepless nights. And it's vaporous. Um, I'm not going to rethrow all those quotes at you, but one more just to, to, to kind of reconnect what I'm talking about. Brad Pitt. Here's a guy who his career did everything he asked it to do and a billion times more. I mean, how many people get to have the life he had? And he said, the emphasis is now on success and personal gain, and I'm sitting in it. And I'm telling you that that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, 
But once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. And it doesn't help you sleep any better. And it doesn't help you wake up any better because of it. There is one indisputable reality that the teacher, that God is saying, faces all of us that changes everything, that changes the calculus, that changes how you need to live your life. And in the, the teacher's estimation, it's this. He says in verse 18, verse 21, and verse 26, it's one of the few things that he repeats multiple, multiple times. Here's that reality. You will have to hand off to another person all the spoils of what you've worked for. Not just the money. He's not just saying uh, you don't get to take your money account with you, you know, when you die. He's saying in this life, you will hand over the reins. You will pass the baton of what you have poured your life into to change and improve and better and refine. You'll hand it over to somebody else. And they may or may not do a great job at it. They might ruin it. And even if they do a great job of it, it's still hard. Um, I'm going to put them on the spot. But Nathan and Nicole, I don't know how... Y'all feel about the church you left in Miami. It's hard to leave something in somebody else's hands that was your baby. I left RUF at New Mexico State, and the guy who followed me is a great friend of mine. I love him, and he did, he's doing a great job. But you, and I came in after Justin Clement here. I can't possibly understand why Justin did all the things just exactly the way he did it here. But he knew, and he probably looks back now, and he's like, why is he doing it that way? Doesn't he know that if you do that, that's going to happen? And we found this out 10 times over. You feel the futility of it? You're going to hand over your life's work to somebody else, and they're not going to do it the way you would want to do it. The teacher is saying, how does this change the way you start your career and step into your career if you know this from the beginning? The teacher is saying, friends, we're building sandcastles, not castles. And it's okay, we're going to see in just a second, how can we make work work again, but it's okay, but just have that awareness stepping into it. If you're asking work and performance to make you happy, work won't work. It can't work. It was never meant to work like that. But how can work work again? You know, I've used this a couple of times before, but just imagine um, our relationship with work is like a dislocated shoulder. How can we put this back into socket? A human being's good, healthy, godly relationship with vocation, career, work, ambition. How can we put it back into socket, and what's the range of motion look like once we have? And this is there's our last point where we end. The teacher takes his conversation about work to a good and encouraging place. But look, his solution to our work problems isn't, isn't more rest. There's a, there's a place for that. We're going to talk about it this weekend. He doesn't say, you need a better work-life balance. He doesn't say, you need better boundaries or better schedule or lower expectations of what you, you should expect from work. This is getting at his solution to our work problem. He says, and I think this is verse 24, 25. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink. And here it is, find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, this toil, whatever job you have or will have, is a gift from the hand of God. For without him... Who can eat or find any enjoyment? 
That's his solution, is to receive um, basically the lot or the, or the portion or the plan that God has seen fit to give you and humbly embracing that. Now, I've described that, but how do we get there? Because that seems, um, okay, you've, all you've done is point and say, move north, but how? What's it look like to move in that direction? Um, it begins with repentance. And repentance just simply means um, if you really believe that um, life is found walking north and you're walking south, repentance is turning. Repentance is doing a three-point turn. It's pulling into the gas station saying, I think we're going the wrong way. We need to head back this way. But it's a repentant attitude that life is not fundamentally about gain. But life is fundamentally about gift. Because God is a giver. Life is not this thing filled with scarcity where we leverage every little opportunity we have to get more for ourselves. But life, the teacher says, is ultimately about the gifts of God and receiving them and enjoying them and using them with joy. And not in theory. Here's the hard part. But in reality, in the real present tense circumstances of your life this week, in your life this week, in these circumstances you're in right now, beginning to shift perspectives from one of, I don't have enough, I need more, God's holding out on me, these people have it better than me, to a perspective of, I need to pay attention to what God is present tense in my circumstances this week, in my life, in my skin, what is he giving me? And opening our eyes to that. When we have a perspective or a lens that we look at and interpret our lives and the world around us, a, a lens of gain, that life is about gain, immediately uh, we feel like everything's scarce and we've got to go get out there and compete with each other and, and you know, store up enough in our little lives so that we, we don't get left high and dry, so that we're secure, so that we have enough, so that we have more. Here's some examples just to bring this down to earth. Your 82 on an organic test sounded amazing until your roommate showed you that she got a 90. And all of a sudden, you feel condemned and ashamed about your 82. You immediately felt scarcity and you wanted more or you wanted better. Or maybe you were on top of the world that some newer friends in RUF said, hey, are you going to win a retreat? You should ride with us. And you were on top of the world. Um, but then you found out maybe another friend of yours got invited to a ride with another group of people that you perceive as socially cooler than the people who invited you, and now you feel like, man, I wish I was in that car. Now I'm stuck in this car. And you immediately feel scarcity, and you want more. You want gain. Or the weight that you worked so hard to lose over Christmas break seemed exhilarating. You felt healthier felt like your clothes fit better, you felt more confidence until you showed up at community group last night and the new transfer student walked in who had the perfect body and you immediately felt scarce and like you lacked and like you wanted more and like it wasn't enough and like you had to work harder to get it to be enough. That is chasing our tails into a death spiral. 
because it will never be enough. But repenting of and putting off that mentality of scarcity and anxious toil and sleepless nights and a restless heart so that we can gain more and get more and climb the ladder of enoughness and being more and mattering is no way to live, the teacher says. But let's go back through those three examples real quick for the mentality of gift. And you get that 82, and your roommate comes in, and she's not trying to rub it in your face, but you see it sticking out of her book bag a little bit, and it's a 90. And you've got to deal with that all by yourself, because you don't want to necessarily tell her what you got or make her feel bad that she got the better grade. But you're wrestling with the Lord, and you're saying, Lord, you know, I studied my tail off for that test. And I'm really thankful to you, because I don't think I could have been done better than an 82. I think this accurately reflects how prepared I was, and... You gave me a clear mind, and you kind of cleared my schedule the day before. I'm really grateful to you for this 82. Or you say, Lord, you know what a struggle my weight has been. You know how much I get stuck in my head in the mirror. But you really helped me over the break. Like, you really gave me grace in some little moments to get outside, to move around. I really do feel healthier. I'm not getting sick as much. It doesn't matter what the comparison is between the others. Thank you for what you helped me do. Would you please help me? Would you please help me? Or you say, Father, what a grace that some people who I don't even know that well remembered me and included me in a car. These people need to be loved. Help me to get to know them. This is the difference that that perspective makes. Zach Eswine is another guy that I've been kind of reading through as, I, as we do this series in Ecclesiastes, and he contrasts these two attitudes of an attitude of gain, which means I don't have enough and I always need to fight for more, I'm going to use my job and my status to get more versus an attitude of gift. Everything I have in this life is a gift from a good and kind God who is generous. He says the Western idea that we should seize the day changes when we have this shift of perspective from a get out there, assert yourself, take it and make it happen to something more like open your hands, pay attention to what God is giving and to what he is not giving and receive with humility what he gives as enough, and thankfully pursue this and enjoy it. And can we leave that quote up there for just a minute? As I keep talking, just let that sink in. Humbly learning to embrace what God has given you in these present circumstances this week, and what he has not, and knowing that he is good and kind, and he is paying attention, and that he's calling us to pay attention to what he's doing. But friends, here's where we, uh, where we, we end because we can't just say, um, oh, just repent of the way you're looking at your life because we haven't yet done with the motivation. Like, why does our gaze keep leaving this attitude of gift and, and shifting back to this attitude of gain, that life's about accumulating more and getting more? Why does our heart keep shifting over there? Ultimately, Paul, of all people, gives us the answer in the first few chapters of Romans. Um, if you're a freshman now and you come on Tuesday nights, this is what we, we were talking about last night, the past few weeks. If you were there in the past, you remember, maybe. This is what we talked about. This is why we talked about it. It's why we go through Romans in the spring with freshmen. Paul is saying in chapter one, all the things that we ask to justify us and to tell us with divine authority, you matter. You're good enough, you're beautiful enough, you're smart enough, you belong, you're okay, 
You measure up, you pass the test. You're not an interloper here. We look at all these other things to render an authoritative verdict of why we're okay. But we know deep down, and the celebrities know deep down, and the teacher knows deep down, none of those things can do it. None of them can pass muster. None of them can speak to us in a way that our souls actually believe, that actually persuades us. And this is where the secret and the mystery is revealed. Romans 3, Paul says this, For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our biggest need is not a lack of productivity or a lack of friends or a lack of emotional stability or a lack of educational access or a lack of connections in the workforce. God looks at us and he says, your most urgent and gaping need is where we have fallen short in an answer to sin. So what do we do about it? Do we work our tails off in a meritocracy? Do we earn our ways off? Is all of life an audition before the most demanding audience, a holy God? No, he says, all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says in Ephesians chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, not meritocracy and not earning and not performance and not auditioning. By gift, you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of your working, so that no one may boast. This is the good news that the teacher in Ecclesiastes had a small inkling about was coming, but we have perfect crystal clear clarity about. The last example that I want to end on is what difference does this make in your life if you can... can Put off asking your job one day or your status or the title after your name and an email signature if you can stop asking that to render a verdict over how important you are or loved you are or valued you are or validated you are but what if you let God do that because he does it freely and he loves to what changes in your day-to-day -day life and in the workplace this was this came up at fall conference uh, I forget the name of our speaker, great speaker. But he told the story of Eric Liddell, the English runner in the Olympics back in the 30s versus his opponent, Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams, not a believer. And he said, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my entire existence. But will I? All of life, all of work was one long audition with no verdict, always trying to prove himself, always trying to be enough. And his, I don't know if you call him running mate, he was a few lanes over in the same race, Eric Little, who knew the Lord Jesus Christ and had experienced Ephesians 2 and Romans 3 and the power of God's gift of salvation and was no longer asking for success and performance and work in athleticism to render a verdict over his life, was able to enjoy the race. And he said, God has made me for a purpose.
God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. When you're not asking work to be God for you or to render a divine verdict over your life, you can actually embrace whatever job or work God gives you, whether it's rolling burritos in the back of a Chipotle where nobody but the little online order people see you, or it's any other job, it glorifies him, and you're happy because you're not asking it to be God for you. You have him, and you have his approval, and you have meaning, and all of these things. Friends, don't ask your work to do for you what Jesus would love to do for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Savior of sinners. You are the one who comes to heal hollow and broken humans. You are the true human. We pray that you would come and that you would meet us in our hevel, in this vaporous chase where we run after the wind, all of us, wanting whatever we did most recently in school or work or what we will do one day to make us matter. Help us to hear your voice say, you matter because I have chosen you in grace and made you my own. I pray this in your name. Amen.